simple outline, but one that was incredibly difficult to live, impossible except for the grace of God, and that is that we live in a spirit of unity, with minds that are humble towards one another. We prefer one another. We, we look at one another. We live in such a way that isn't always looking out for ourselves, but coming with all different backgrounds and perspectives, we come and still have one voice, a like-mindedness. And that comes as we have a measure of sympathy and compassion. He pl places those two things together. And that is that we're not easily offended and always looking, again, out for our own sake, but, but getting into the, the lives, the hearts, the minds of others and standing beside them and owning their joys and owning their sorrows. And then it's centered in the middle of it, then, is brotherly love, uh, that we would have a, a sincere an earnest, that would be an unhypocritical and eager love for one another that, that moves us towards one another and towards caring for one another. And he moves then beyond the Christian relationship. Then how do we uh, corporately as Christians and how do we individually as Christ followers, what then is our heart and our attitude towards the world? towards those who are outside of the church that don't share our confession of hope? that don't share our Christian ethic, and even more specifically, those who actually oppose it, that stand in, in opposition, whether it's a mocking opposition or just sort of a secular mindset that would oppose a Christian ethic, a Christian way of living. And we're told in that that, that our heart towards those who would insult or who would revile us should be instead of returning insult, returning revilement, always be looking out to, for ourselves, for self-indication, whatever it might be, we should return blessing to those people. Our heart should be set towards blessing them. And then Peter gives us this sort of proverbial wisdom. You want to enjoy your life, you want to see good days, just enjoy you, the moments that you have of this life, then here's how you live. Don't be foolish in the way you use your tongue, the way you use your mouth. Don't be causing strife. Don't be getting involved in arguments that aren't your own. Be honest. Because those who are always kind of messing around and stirring up strife and gossips, their life is full of strife. It talks about the one. It's like a person who's like that, the proverb says. It's like the person who walks past a dog and pulls at its ears. You're just asking for trouble. You're asking to get bit, bitten, bited, whatever. And so you live that way. Then it moves on. How else are you to live? But you are to, to be a, a blessing towards those who revile you. you. You return a blessing for insult. Then you seek peace and you pursue it. And so Peter picks up with these sort of thoughts in mind, and he's really going to play out then our interaction with those who are outside of the church. But he picks up in verse 13 with this question. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you remember a, a couple things about doing good as we defined it in, in Peter, he talks about turning away from evil and doing good. It's the idea of using the talents, the gifts, the opportunities, the resources, whatever the Lord has given you, and using them in a Christ-honoring way for the good of society. 
that you would endeavor to bring back beauty and goodness and virtue to whatever it is that, that you are doing, whatever you are engaged in, that you would be doing good. Bringing back a little renewal to creation in the midst of all the fallenness. And so it's this idea of, of doing good. Peter uses this phrase a lot. We need to remember it's in the realm of societal good, Christian good. This is not meritorious justifying good. All right. So he's not just saying, if you do good, then God will bless you. As if your good outweighs your evil, now you're on the right side when it comes to the Lord. No, it's saying God has already blessed you. He has set you free from sin. We reviewed all this last week, and he has set you forth on a path, and the person who is blessed should be a blessing to others. That should mark their life. So with those sort of ideas in mind, Peter kind of returns with this proverbial wisdom. The person who is zealous for what is good, is anxious for what is good, who is going to harm that person? There's a few levels here to understand, but first again, Generally, if you're pursuing peace, you're doing good and being kind with the things the Lord has given you, your life is going to be marked by those things. By peacefulness, by goodness, by blessing. It's a proverbial truth that generally that is how things work out in the fabric of God's creation. I think it's imperative for us to to think of that in the sense of, I think too often Christians run to an idea of persecution. We'll see that indeed Christians can be persecuted, that there is suffering. But often in our minds we're persecuted way before that happens. Generally, when you're facing difficulty, it's because you've lived foolishly and you're facing the consequences for the way you've lived. If you're out there using your tongue in an unwise way and you're stirring the pot and you're not seeking peace and things get difficult for you, that's not the time to call persecution. You're living in a way that's unwise and you're experiencing the consequences of that. Just because also, just because we think we know that, that culture is generally turned away from a Christian worldview and we might hear something on the news or even see something on social media, in a day-to-day -day level, that's not persecution. That's not stealing your joy and putting you at risk. And I think Christians too quickly jump into this idea of, I'm persecuted, I'm persecuted. Now, now we'll see, persecution absolutely takes place. Suffering for the sake of righteousness absolutely takes place. But Peter's saying, generally, the experience of a Christian is you live seeking peace and you return good for evil, then your life is going to be marked by enjoying your days of having a life that is enjoyable. And yet, as one author says, while Christians are not undergoing continuous suffering, they do live in an environment charged with suspicion and hostility, which in the past has erupted and can erupt into violence and persecution. So proverbially, generally, this is how things work. And yet, at times, we are to expect, and in some parts of the world, they face it even more intense, we are to expect that we will suffer at some level, at some point, for righteousness' sake, for our faith. What we would term, in some level, Christian persecution. And how are we to then act? How are we 
to live in that way. A couple more thoughts on just this first verse where we move into the meat of it. We know this is the case because already we've been told that we're return, we are to return good when there is vi- reviling and insult against us. So the good behavior that we've been told to, to show forth already is sort of taken in the play, in the context of hostility. And yet I think there is an idea of like a Romans 8 idea to this. If God is for us, who can be against us? That idea of who is really to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That is, if God, as we have rehearsed in 1 Peter, by his abundant mercy, has saved us, has, has given us new life according to an abundant hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, if that is yours and he's working in you to make you zealous for what is good, then really who, if someone rises up against you, can they really steal your happiness? Can they really steal your joy? Can they really cause you harm in the big picture? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? In fact, he's already told us earlier in First Peter that those who rise up against you in various ways, God uses them as a tool for your sanctification in order that you might be more like him and be kept for an unfading, undefiled inheritance. So ultimately, let's put this in perspective. We're not always persecuted. And even when we are, can these people really cause us harm? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then the last sort of contextual thing to keep in mind is that as we talk about being blessed by God and the good life, and yet then there's some suffering and there's some persecution, we need to realize in the Christian framework that the opposite of blessing is not suffering. The opposite of blessing would be curse. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is clear that blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are you when people insult insult you. When, When they charge you of things which you are not to be charged of. When they persecute you for righteousness sake. Blessed are you in those moments. And so God's pronouncement of benediction, God's pronouncement of blessing, that his faith shines upon you, that he is gracious to you, that we just saw earlier in verse 12 of this chapter, isn't undone by suffering. In fact, the two exist together very often in the Christian life. It's important that we guard against, that you guard against a version of the gospel that promises that God is saving you because he wants you to be happy, and your happiness is this. You'll be healthy, you'll have everything that you want. The more possessions you have equals the more blessing that God is giving you, which shows just the amount of faith that you really have. Then in the end, that excuses me to have my own private plane to fly here from Morningside, because I can just prove how blessed I am because my faith is so great. And we need to realize in this context of a proverbial that you live a certain good life and there is blessing, that that blessing doesn't equal material, physical blessing. Sometimes it might, but it doesn't always. That blessing equals God's benediction right now that his face is upon you, that his ears are open to your prayers, and that your greater blessing is the one that is still to come. All right. So now, with this sort of of our context, he's gonna, Peter's going to labor with us now for a while that we will face suffering. 
We will face persecution at some level. How then, as Christians, do we engage that? I think the very heart of the issue comes in verse 15. This is sort of the key statement, and then around that, there's a lot of supporting thoughts. So we'll look at verse 15 first. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Maybe your text says it a little differently. Perhaps yours says, sanctify Christ as Lord, depending on your version. I think either way, they're acceptable versions, but I, I, I think... It, you miss a little bit of what is being said in the English translation there. I think uh, uh, the thought that is being communicated is honoring or setting apart as sacred in your hearts the lordship of Christ. It's an awareness that, that Christ has a category all to his own, that Jesus indeed is king. He is your lord. He is your sovereign. He is both the grounds of your hope, he is both the goal of your, and the goal of your hope. That when we come to worship, we are worshiping Christ. He is our treasure. He is supreme. He is set apart. And so if, as you come into suffering, before Peter says, here's one, two, three of what you need to do, here's one, two, three of what you shouldn't do, no, the heart, the issue of it is Jesus Christ set apart as supreme in your heart. Is he lifted up as holy? Is he the grounds of your hope? Is he the goal of your hope? How do we get there? The same application we always have, right? Just those ordinary means of coming and hearing the word, of singing, of hearing the preaching. Isn't that the point of the table? To be reminded once again, here is the grounds of your hope, the body and the blood. Here is the goal of our hope. What do we say at the end of each time? As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That future hope, that future look. Christ needs to be, if you're going to walk into suffering in a Christian way, you can maybe pull off some actions to do, some things not to do, but Christ needs to be set apart in your heart as wholly valuable, as supreme, as king and Lord. The grounds of your hope, the goal of your hope, and when that is the case, then some of these other things fall into place. So we'll back up to verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, again, this is going to take place. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So as we face suffering, if Christ is set apart in our heart as wholly valuable, then we will fear the Lord and not those who oppose us. We will fear the Lord and not those who oppose us. Peter is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 8 that sometimes there will be an individual or there will be a group or there will just be a sentiment that opposes you in your Christian worldview and your Christian ethic that's going to take place. And Peter is saying, do not fear those who oppose you. Don't fear them, because as we've already seen, they can't steal your inheritance from you. God is guarding that inheritance for us. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 10. And not only is he guarding that inheritance for us, he's guarding you for that inheritance. They might rise up and oppose you, but there's nothing they can really do to harm you. 
They might embarrass you for a second. They might make you a little uncomfortable. But, but there is nothing that they can do to oppose you. If we are going to be able to return blessing for an insult, you really have to have a spirit that doesn't fear man. <clears throat> we'll all fear man at some level. I get that. We, but we need to have a heart that is battling that fear of man. Otherwise, you'll live in such a way that you keep your Christian life, your Christian commitment secret, so you might never face those sort of pressure. Or when that pressure comes, your insecurity rises to the top. Instead of returning blessing, you just throw down and, and go after them trying to justify yourself. All that is driven by fear of man. Peter saying, Christ is set apart in your heart as extremely valuable, as the most valuable, as your Lord and King, then you can walk in a way that does not fear man. You know, I think there, there's very few things that steal your joy we're looking still back at that verse 12 of 1 Peter 3 of, of loving life and enjoying your days than the fear of man. My brother, he has older kids than me. In fact, I think one of them just turned 21 today or tomorrow or something. In, he has two boys who are in college now. And when they turned 13, he had different men who were influential in, in his son's lives to write them a short letter that they could kind of keep and have for their teen years. So there's maybe eight, ten guys who, who did that. And so I was able to write a letter for my nephews in that. And for both of them, both of those boys, I remember writing that they would have, encouraging them to have a fear of God and not a fear of man. I think especially at a younger age, I encourage you guys who just hitting your teen years or almost in your teen years if you can set a pattern now and get in your heart and mind to fear the Lord instead of fearing man you will have such a better more joyful more Christ honoring experience through high school through your early life that will continue on you think of how many things you I can think back in my high school days how many things i you know, I tried to always put a persona on that I didn't care what people think. And yet, how many things I kind of wanted to do that I didn't do because I was afraid of what others might think. Uh, Christ-honoring things, things that just seemed enjoyable to participate in, and yet you hold back, you shrink back because of the fear of man. So if you find yourself fearing man, make it part of your prayer, that, that God would give you victory over that. That, that he would put your fear, fear of God, and not fear man. That's the way to love life and enjoy good days. And again, it starts by returning to magnifying Christ. As he's magnifying your heart and your mind, the fear of man will diminish. But he, he continues. So as we bump up against suffering, as we bump up against opposition, how do we live in a God-honoring way? Well, we make Christ, we, we honor him as Lord. And that will directly oppose us fearing man. Secondly, honoring Christ as Lord will prepare us, make us ready to give a reason for our hope. Verse 15, but, if in, your, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Always ready to give a reason, to give a defense for the hope that is in you. 
this sanctifies the Lord or sets him apart as holy because Jesus Christ is the hope that is in you. That's how those two relate. This verse is often used sort of as the grounds for apologetics, the discipline of apologetics, or for sort of deep theological study, and appropriately so. In fact, I think we had a book in seminary called Always Ready, kind of like a primer for apologetics, Always Ready, from this verse here. And that's ready to engage and to defend the gospel. But I think within context, Peter's just making an argument for something simpler than that. That you would look, and Peter is full of the promises of God, explicit and implicit promises to us. You just look at verses 3 through 10 again of chapter 1. And now when men rise up against you and you react by blessing them instead of insulting them, and they want to know the reason for the hope, the hope is this, that according to his abundant mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living and sure hope. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The hope is an objective reality. It exists outside of us. It's not just everybody has their own personal thing that makes them feel better, and that's your hope. It's an objective reality, and it's this. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, which assumes, it tells us, that he came incarnate, that he lived the perfect life, that he died for us, and that sin and death had no hold on him. He defeated the final enemies. He was raised from the dead. And with us, we are given life and a living and a sure hope. So this hope is is objective. It's not some subjective feeling. It exists outside of us. Now when we are giving that hope, indeed there is a personal relational aspect to it. That that hope has gripped your heart. It has changed your motives. It's changed your desires. And so there's a relational uh, and personal aspect. But the hope exists outside of ourselves. This verse assumes something. Do you know what it's assuming? That at some point in your life, someone might ask you (laughs) the reason for the hope that you have. If, If we can, as Christians, embrace this way of living, that as a community, we are humble and geared towards one another displaying brotherly love, putting each other's needs above our own, not dividing over silly, stupid things. If we are able to have that be part of our life, and then as we bump into the world, as we go out and we're outward facing, that, that the reviling and the insults, that they don't cause us to shrink back in fear of man, and they don't cause us to lash out in returning insult for insult, but, but we can bless as we graciously defend our faith. We can be a blessing and, and seek others good. That should cause at some point to someone to look at you and be like, what's up with you? That's not a natural way to be. That takes supernatural transformation and power. And so we live that way It also tells us a little bit about how the church should think about facing up to the world. That we aren't a wholly isolated, huddled group that never bumps into the world around us. But that we're not of the world, but we are in the world. That we are living our Christian life 
on display in front of the world. That, that our friends and our jobs and our neighborhoods and our interactions are with those who don't share our same confession of faith. And when they see that, they want to know the reason for the way that you live, the hope that you have. And so your life is lived in such a way in front of those people and you're ready to testify of your faith in front of people who don't necessarily agree or have that same hope that you have. And so there's an outward-facing reality to this hope that we have. It speaks a little more about how we are to defend, how we are to give a reason for the hope that is in us. <clears throat> it's pretty straightforward, so we'll just look at it quickly here. Again, I'll begin reading verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So you're always ready. So basically, to anyone at any time, be ready. Most of us, you know, we think like, well, I can get geared up for the mission trip. You know, when you're away from everyone you know, you're in some, I don't know, island country for a week and I remember that as a kid you're full of sort of like enthusiasm energy and it's like I'll definitely share the Lord with somebody in Mexico who doesn't speak my language and who I never have to see again <laughs> but then when you're back home on your baseball team it's a lot harder to give a reason for your hope to that kid who you're going to see the next day and the next day and the next day at practice we're told here always ready in any season to give a reason to anyone how is it to be done yet do it with gentleness and respect again that this apologetic tool of, of giving a reason isn't a weapon to bludgeon someone with but there should be a spirit of gentleness in the way you do it of, of winsomeness evangelistic and trying to win someone to the gospel, a spirit of gentleness and a spirit of respect. Again, that same sort of honoring of people, that you, you are just honorable in the way you are promoting good in the way that you interact with one another. Verse 16, having a good conscience. I think this refers to walking in such a way that you're talk matches your walk <laughs> you know and having a good verbal defense for the gospel and living like a total pagan they don't go hand in hand you can't it's hard to approach them with a good conscience and be able to to testify to them when you're living in, in a way that would go totally against your confession of faith which is probably why it's easier to go to mexico and talk to someone than it is the baseball teammate you see every day because it's walking the walk. That you would live in such a way, have a good conscience, a clear conscience, that as I am speaking the gospel, it's out of a heart that has set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. I'm living in such a way, not perfectly by any means, but living in such a way that he has been set apart as King of kings and Lord and lords in my heart. Finally, we see here the, the last thing we'll look at close here in the last couple minutes we're faced with this sort of suffering for righteousness sake we set Christ apart in our hearts and in our lives in order that we will have a life that will not be put to shame 
a life that will not be put to shame. Look how that finishes. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Put to shame, we often associate it sort of immediately with the idea of like an emotion of embarrassment. But the text here, scripture, when it speaks about being put to shame, it has more the idea of, of being defeated, of having no sound defense, or being at one's mercy. It has less to do with an emotion of embarrassment and more of one's standing, that, that they are on the losing side of this argument. It, it's really an eschatological promise, a forward-looking promise, that one might slander you for the way you live now, but in the end, vengeance will be the Lord's. They will be the one who have no defense, who are on the wrong side of the argument. You live in such a way that even when they slander you, you won't be put to shame. You still will experience that blessing. He finishes in verse 17 again in a proverbial type way. He says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Proverbs are full of those. It is better to statements. And again, it's better to suffer for doing good, to have some sort of temporary, momentary uh, opposition than it is to suffer for doing evil, which is an eternal judgment. I think it's important here at the end that it pushes us back and away from an idea of measuring the good versus evil. Because if we're honest, we all stand on the side of deserving shame, of deserving punishment. Because we all, by heritage of being from Adam, we all, by choice, by action, are sinners. No one has behaved good in order that God might be favorable to them. We all deserve to suffer for doing evil, except for one man, the man Christ Jesus who suffered only for doing good. He only did good, and yet he suffered the consequences of you and me who do evil. That's the redeeming work. Only God's, Jesus Christ's goodness, good works are redemptive. That is where our hope rests. That is where our hope lies. But it should move over that even in the face of opposition, we can face up against it, not fear man, setting Jesus Christ apart as the only one to fear, as holy and exalted, the, the goal and the grounds of our hope. And so doing that we'll be ready to give a gentle but strong defense of the hope that we have that lies in us. Because Christ already suffered for our sin. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth, Lord. That indeed, Lord, you've set things up that if we live a life that pursues what is good, that pursues what is peaceful, that generally that will be our experience. By your gracious and good hand, we are thankful for that. But Lord, at the same time, we know that that won't always be our experience. There will be moments of suffering for doing what is righteous, doing what you've called us to do. 
Lord, in those moments, I pray that our hearts would be set up on you, that we'd realize a little bit of suffering can't steal our joy, doesn't force us into disobedience, Lord, that we would be bold, courageous, and following after you. I'll give you just a moment there in quietness to prayerfully consider the word.